A very good morning, dear family in Christ. Come, let us pray. Loving and caring God, we come this morning in hope. Hope that will sustain us in our trying times, our lonely times, our doubting times. Open our eyes to your word and give us the will to obey what you command in Holy Scripture. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. In the popular Chinese drama, Story of Yanxi Palace, the Qing Empress Fu Ta defends one of her palace maids, the main character Wei Ying Luo, from the wrath of the emperor. He was angered by Ying Luo and how she had meddled with palace affairs, and he was ready to exact punishment. But in a dramatic move unbecoming of an empress, Empress Fu Ta defies the emperor's will, and she puts herself in danger by defending Ying Luo. When the emperor asks why, she replies, she is my hope. You see, Ying Luo personifies how the empress wishes she could live. Before the empress married, she was a woman of arts and culture, able to indulge in song and dance. But once she became the empress, she had to forego all of this, and she had to live as the mother of the Qing Empire where everything had to be done in accordance with the royal palace etiquette. In contrast, Ying Luo actively chooses to live against this reality of palace etiquette if it meant that she could be true to herself, but this puts her in constantly in odds with the emperor. In this dramatic moment, the empress reveals that she wishes she could be like Ying Luo, who is unwaveringly authentic. Of course, this is highly fictionalized Chinese history. But the drama puts very accurately into focus that there are many layers to life in reality. Sometimes, these layers are incompatible with one another, and one must learn to live with these layers in tension. We learn that for the empress, the struggle is real. This is like us who are born again in Christ. We were once sinners with no hope of salvation until Christ came to give us new life. But although we are new in Christ, we still have to live in a reality where sin is dominant. The struggle is real. To recap in our journey in the book of Romans, Paul reveals the true nature of our reality. In chapters 1 through 5, he examines the problem of bad deeds. Guilty before a holy God, we hear that Jesus Christ, God's Son, took the punishment for our bad deeds. He paid our debt, and our sins are completely covered before the eyes of God. We can now stand before God in Christ as if we had never sinned. This is atonement, and we receive the justification of sins. In chapters 5 and 6, Paul examines the problem of sin itself. Imagine a manufacturing machine which is supposed to produce soap of lemon fragrance, but instead of lemon, it produces the smell of rotten eggs. You wouldn't say that the soap is the problem. Something in the machine has broken down. The machine itself is broken. Likewise, before we knew Christ, our lives were dominated by sin. We needed a new life. So Christ opened the way for us, In the wisdom of divine design, we had to die and to rise in a new life with Christ, and in so doing, receive the justification of life. 
This is the reality of salvation. That unless we die and rise again with Christ, we will not have new life. The crux of chapter 6 is that in this new life with Christ, we are dead to sin and we are to offer ourselves as instruments of righteousness. Now, armed with this background, we are now ready to tackle what Paul would teach us in today's passage. Some of your Bibles will have the headers to this passage as the struggle or the conflict. This is an accurate summary of the chapter. Today, Paul will define for us what the struggle is and why it is real, and give us pointers to deal with the struggle. My first point today is this. The struggle is real because we changed our total allegiance from sin to Jesus. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only during that person's lifetime? Thus, a married woman is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is discharged from the law concerning the husband. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. In the same way, my friends, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we are slaves not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. A change of allegiance always brings a whole host of problems. Gru, the main character of Despicable Me, turns from being a supervillain to a loving family man. But he does so at the expense of his entire career and his way of life as a supervillain. There are moments in the movies where he wishes he could use one of his villain gadgets to easily get things done, but he chooses not to. There are moments of genuine conflict when his fellow villains openly disparage and disdain him for changing sides. But he considers the conscious choice of caring for his daughters as the better alternative. When you enter the new life with Jesus, you aren't magically teleported out from the world. You remain in the world, but now carry the life of Christ with you. This will put you in direct conflict with all manner of living. The vices you once enjoyed, the way you used to get things done, even certain words in your vocabulary. Most of these things will no longer be compatible with Christ. This is why I think that it is apt that Paul uses the marriage metaphor in verses 1-6 to and not other conventions like the slave-master relationship or the king-subject relationship. In marriage, you willfully enter into a covenant relationship with your spouse. But to do so, you need to give up certain aspects of life and consider the needs of your spouse in equal or greater measure than the needs of your own. Indeed, as Pastor Anthony put it in last week's sermon, The one whom you love is the one you will serve willingly. Let me tell you something personal. I can sleep very easily. And I can sleep through anything. You know, there was once I slept through a fire alarm in my hostel during my undergraduate days. 
This ability to sleep easily wasn't a problem when I was single. But when I got married, it became a very big problem. Because my wife is the exact opposite. She is a light sleeper. And she cannot sleep when I do because I snore. So there's a conflict of two layers in our marriage reality. If I choose to ignore my wife's need, I will certainly sleep and she won't. And all husbands will agree that this is a very bad move. So what do I do? I yield to my wife's needs. Every night, I will wait for my wife to sleep first before I do. And to help her relax and sleep, I will give her a massage. I stop the massage when she's about 99% on the way to sleeping, and only then is it my turn to sleep. Would I rather be sleeping if I was selfish? Yes. But I feel a sense of love overcome me every time I get to do the night massages. Yes, it takes time away from sleeping. And there is effort in massaging. Uh, and by the way, I'm in no way qualified to be a masseuse. But I love my wife. And her sleeping soundly makes it all worthwhile. We were once married to the law. We could not belong to another. But now, having died and been raised to the body of Christ, we belong to him. We need to change our way of life now that we belong to Christ. And just, but just like a marriage relationship, although these changes may go against what we are so used to doing in comparison to knowing and loving Christ more deeply, they are worth it. My second point today is this. The struggle is real because we changed our inner alignment from sinfulness to Jesus. What then should we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity in a commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Did what is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, working death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now, I understand it can be very confusing to read the rest of chapter 7. What's Paul trying to say? What's he talking about? Is he referring to himself? Is he referring to someone else? Let me share with you something that helped me appreciate what Paul is doing in this chapter. And hopefully, it will help you too. Firstly, we need to recognize that Paul is using a variety of literary devices to communicate more deeply with his audience. It's just like how those of us preaching have to use stories, examples, anecdotes, allegories, just so that we can illuminate the text. Secondly, let's recognize that Paul has a certain structure to his text, and there are in fact two sections in chapter 7. I believe Paul is using a particular rhetorical strategy that would have been commonly accepted practice in his time. 
Greek drama and impersonation. In Greek drama, it was common for the same actor to play multiple parts, and he would switch the characters by changing masks to take on different personas. It can be very jarring, just like this. I can talk to you, you can recognize that it's me speaking, but once I go, this reminds me of a story long before your time in the southern province of China. Can you guess who that is? Okay, 8 o'clock, got it straight away. So over here, this is a more modern crowd, so I expected the answer to be a bit slower. That's the character of Tan Atek from Living from Under One Roof. For those of you who recognized it, you recognized that it wasn't me he was speaking. I was giving an impression of Tan Atek. In the first section between verses 7 to 13, I believe Paul is bringing the character of Adam to life. This makes sense of the following evidence. Firstly, Paul had earlier used Adam as an example in chapter 5 in establishing the Adam-Christ typology. That is, Christ is compared to Adam. Christ is the second Adam, the Adam that brought us life and not death. It will make sense that he is reusing an example and expanding upon it. Secondly, God's first command to Adam was not to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In essence, this was a command against covetousness. Furthermore, who in the Bible was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, died? In my analysis, only Adam fits this characterization. So to be clear, I believe Paul is not describing himself here. If Paul was describing himself here, he is basically nullifying what he wrote in chapter 6. Remember, we are now dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. So the question is, why does Paul impersonate Adam? I think it is to bring to mind the same typology from chapter 5. As Pastor Lee put it in his sermon, there is death in Adam, but life in Christ. Paul argues that the law is good and holy. It is not the problem. We are the problem. Just like the broken machine that cannot help but produce bad soap, we only had the inner alignment of our thoughts and behaviors to evil. We want to cross the line because there is a line. I call this cookie jar theology. Tell a child not to take a cookie from a jar. What happens? You will most certainly find that a child will try to take the cookie from the jar. One of the most vivid memories of cookie jar theology in my life was when I was at a hotel dinner as a child. I remember a water feature in the restaurant, and in that restaurant, uh, it was illuminated by these very large halogen bulbs. And beside those bulbs, there was a very prominent sign. It said, do not touch the light. What do you think happened? Like a moth drawn to the flame, I was inexplicably drawn to a halogen bulb. I reached out for it, and then I grasped it firmly in my hand. Little did I know that the sign was there because halogen bulbs get very hot. As soon as I gripped the bulb, my whole hand was burnt. I mean, don't worry, I healed. Obviously, my hand is still here. But maybe that's that explains why I don't like to touch hot things. I don't know why I did what I did. What came over me? Cookie jar theology tells me that there is an innate desire to cross the line because there is a line. But despite the sweet name of cookie jar theology, 
it's actually more insidious than it sounds. If we examine our culture closely enough, we applaud and celebrate the breaking of rules. The phrase, rules are meant to be broken, is so common and pervasive in our everyday language that we don't think twice about it. In fact, we consider it a job well done when our lawyer discovers loopholes that allow us to get away with breaking a contract. And so the struggle is real. In the new life with Christ, we regained an alignment toward righteous living. We now have a choice as to how we will live life, aligned to sin or aligned to Jesus. The next section is from verses 14 to 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I am a slave to the law of God. But with my flesh, I am a slave to the law of sin. Just as it was in the previous section, I believe Paul is not talking about himself here, even though he uses first-person pronouns. Just like how he assumed Adam's persona earlier, I think that he is dramatizing a monologue that was common in Greek drama. You see, the characters in ancient Greek plays will often speak in very long monologues. This will serve to provide personal insight as well as function as exposition for the listener and the reader. In the famous play Medea by the Greek playwright Euripides, Medea is a woman who is deliberating an act of revenge against her husband. As she thinks of a terrible revenge plot, She is overcome with passion and erupts into a monologue overflowing with emotion concerning the inner conflict over what she is about to do. Just listen to her cry. My afflictions have conquered me. I I now am well aware what crimes I venture on. But rage, the cause of woes most grievous to the human race, over my better reason, hath prevailed. This sounds like a pattern Paul's appeared to have adapted into the text, doesn't it? Maybe we're missing the forest for the trees. Do you find yourself reading this section like a science textbook, you know, analyzing every word and then trying to theologize theologize them? (laughs) Sorry, theologians use very long words. I have no doubt that there's spiritual value in such an endeavor. But I encourage you to approach your Bible reading according to how the text is written. 
Again, to be clear, I believe Paul is not describing himself, and it is through this dramatization that he surfaces the tensions Christians live with. You see, Paul teaches that the gospel isn't just words on paper. The gospel has power. This power brings unrighteous people into a right relationship with God in Christ. This power brings dead people, truly dead people, to new life with Christ. Would you not be overcome with passion and emotion? The struggle is real. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 experienced tremendous mental and emotional distress that he, a sinner, came into direct contact with a supremely holy God. Likewise, we too will be overcome with the reality that although we have pledged a new allegiance and we regained an alignment toward righteousness, we will live in tension with the reality of this sinful, broken world wanting to give in. So, how do we stop ourselves from giving in? Unlike Medea, whose cry remains unanswered, Paul provides for us three ways where we can deal with the struggle. Firstly, we need to be honest before God. Wretched man that I am! This is the cry of a man who has made an honest assessment of himself. As Paul repeatedly tells us in Romans, We cannot deal with our sin on our own. We need Jesus. Secondly, we need to be humble before God and ask for help. Who will rescue me from this body of death? This is an acknowledgement of limitation. It's an act of surrender. If you're drowning and the lifeguard comes to your rescue, the first thing he says to you is to remain calm. Don't struggle. You have to trust that he will pull you to safety. Last but not least, we need to totally depend on Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This cry of praise right here, this is the key to the whole of Romans 7 and the struggle with sin. It's not a formula. It's a person. It's not something on the outside. It's the inner day-to-day dependence on Jesus Christ and realizing that His power and power alone is enough to rescue you. The struggle is real, but through complete dependence on Jesus Christ, there is possibility of significant victory. In conclusion, when Jesus came to give us new life, it wasn't just a washing away of outer sin. Our old nature truly died and we were born again into new life with Christ, changing our allegiance from sin to Jesus. Our struggle is that we will experience problems adjusting to our new life with Jesus. But like a marriage relationship, our conscious choice to change, even though it comes with personal cost, will all be worth it. This new life also regained our inner alignment toward righteousness. Whereas our heart were only aligned to evil without Christ, in the new life we can choose between giving in to sin or honoring Jesus. Our struggle is that we will live in the tension of a new life whilst living in this broken, sinful world. The good news is that we don't have to struggle alone. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, He walks with us. And His power 
not ours, is what will prevail over the forces of darkness. To aid in our struggle, we need to be honest and humble to totally depend on Jesus. His arms are open wide to receive us, to strengthen us in our time of need. Victory over sin is really possible with God's power, but we must be completely submitted to Jesus Christ, our Lord. I will now lead us in a prayer of response that is based on the text in Hillsong's From the Inside Out. It was my favorite song when I was a much younger Christian. But to this day, it articulates the truth of the everlasting grace of God and it helps me to cry out for more of Christ. Come, let us pray. Heavenly Father, a thousand times I failed and still your mercy remains. And should I stumble again, still I am caught in your grace. My heart and my soul, I give you control. Consume me from the inside out. Let justice and praise become my embrace. Consume me from the inside out. The cry of my heart is to give you praise. From the inside out, Lord, my soul cries out. In the name of Christ, in whom all power, honor, and glory is due. Amen.